The Open Boat Journey, the First Ten Days On the morning of Monday, April 24th, all hands were roused at six o'clock to help lash up and stow the cared. As Wilde oversaw the preparation of the boat, Shackleton and Worsley climbed up a small hill they used as a lookout and surveyed the ocean. The ice was within five or six miles of the shore, drifting northeast. Large, grounded icebergs made wide gaps in the ice as they streamed past them. The rescue party would escape through one of those leads. Below, the cared was dragged down to the surf and loaded with the bags of ballast, boxes of stores, a hand pump, a cook pot, six reindeer skin sleeping bags, and the rest of the provisions. At noon, the men heaved the laden boat out on the backwash of a breaking wave, and the remainder of the stores was ferried out on the Stancombe Wills. Shackleton and Worsley rejoined the group. There were handshakes all around. The six members of the relief party boarded the boat, and they shoved off. Behind, on the beach, the remaining 22 men cheered and waved. Good luck, boss, they shouted. Shacklin looked back once and raised his hand in farewell. Gen 2 penguins porpoised along beside the boat as they raised the sail and plunged forward into the rolling waves. The boss stood with one arm around the mast, looking forward, directing Worsley at the helm around the ice. They made good speed for two hours and then reached the loose belt of ice they had left that they had seen from the lookout. They turned east along it, searching for the head leads that would lead them through. Huge lopsided remnant bergs bobbed and heaved in the waves, and small chunks of broken flow knocked and scraped along the sides of the cairn. The whole jumble of loose pack hissed and rustled as it rose to the swell. After an hour's run, they found an opening and turned north to sail through it. Just before dark, they were on the other side, and when they looked over their shoulders, they saw Elephant Island as a small shadow far astern. Shackleton and Worsley had agreed that the safest plan was to get as far north as possible before heading east. For one thing, they would be glad to get away from the most frigid weather as soon as they could. Furthermore, they would be sailing day and night, and they needed to get beyond the limit of flowing ice. If they rammed a chunk in the dark, their journey would be a short one. By 10 p.m., the water seemed relatively clear of ice, and their spirits rose. So far, so good. In the darkness, they steered by keeping an eye on the small blue pennant that streamed from the mast in the wind. The living arrangements on board were uncomfortable and cramped. The men were divided into two watches. Shackleton, Crean, and McNeish steered, bailed, and pumped for four hours, while Worsley, Vincent, and McCarthy slept, or tried to. Then the watches traded places, watch and watch, every four hours. The sleeping bags were forward under the improvised decking on the bow. To teach, reach them, the men had to crawl on hands and knees over the stone ballast and then wriggle forward on their stomachs over the crates of stores. Then, with barely enough room to turn around, they wormed themselves into the sleeping bags and attempted to sleep as the boat bucked up and down through the heavy swell. At the end of each four-hour watch, the men would change places, wriggling past each other in cramped space. It was a toss-up which was worse, being pounded up and down in the bow of the boat in a sorry excuse for sleep, or huddling in the cockpit as icy seas swept across the thwarts and gunwales. There were no oilskins, and the men were dressed in wool, which got wet and stayed wet for the duration of the voyage. With temperatures below freezing and no room to move around to get their blood stirred up, they were always cold, miserably cold. Waves broke over the bows, where bucketfuls of water streamed through the flimsy decking. The bottom of the boat was constantly awash, and the two men on watch who weren't steering were always bailing or pumping. The reindeer skin sleeping bags were soaking wet all the time, and beginning to rot 
Loose reindeer hair, hair found its way into the men's nostrils and mouths as they breathed, into their water and their food as they ate. Crean had taken over as cook for the journey, and the pitching and rolling of the boat, preparing meals, was a tricky business. Crean and Worsley would sit on opposite sides of the boat with their feet up, bracing the primus camp stove. Crean would light the stove and begin stirring up chunks of sledging ration in water as Worsley held the pot. With each dip and plunge the boat, Worsley swooped the pot up in the air, lest their precious hush go slopping into the bilges. When the hush was cooked, Crean doled it out into six bowls, and the men ate it scalding hot, hunched under the decking. Whoever finished first went out to relieve the men at the tiller, the man at the tiller, so that he could eat his hush before it cooled. In addition, Shackleton allowed hot milk and sugar at regular intervals. The only way to keep going was by fueling themselves constantly. By the third day of sailing, the weather turned rotten. A gale blew up with snow squalls and heavy seas, and waves broke incessantly over the boat. The James Caird clawed its way up the face of one hissing wave and then plunged down the other side as spray lashed into the men's faces. The gale continued into the fourth day, finally blowing them north at the 60th parallel. Floating past them went two pieces of wreckage from a lost ship. The men watched it disappear and hunched their shoulders and struggled to keep their little boat on course. As Shacklin put it, so small was our boat and so great were the seas that often our sail flapped idly in the calm between the crests of two waves. Then we would climb the next slope and catch the full fury of the gale where the wool-like whiteness of the breaking water surged around us. For Worsley, navigating had ceased to be a science and had turned into a kind of sorcery. To get a sight of the sun meant Worsley had to kneel on the thwart, where Vincent McCarthy would hug him around the waist to keep him from pitching out of the boat as it bucked and leaped over the waves. Then, while Shacklin stood by with the chronometer, Worsley would wait until the boat reached the top of the wave and the horizon came into sight and then shout, Now! as he shot the sun. His books were fast turning into useless pulp. His sun sights were the crudest of guesses, and to look up at positions in the tables, he had to peel apart the wet pages one by one. Making his calculations with a pencil became laughably impossible. The boat pitched and rolled so badly that he could barely read his own scribbles. The weather was so foul that in the whole journey he managed to take a sight of the sun only four times. Since leaving Elephant Island, the six men had been accompanied by an albatross who soared and dipped through the air. The bird could have reached South Georgia in a matter of hours, if it chose, while the men in the James Caird were crawling like a beetle over the surface of the ocean. Each time Worsley calculated the number of miles they had put behind them, the birds seemed to mock their slow progress. On their seventh day at sea, the wind again turned into a gale, roaring up from the pole. The temperature plummeted. The men began to fear that the sails would freeze up and cake with ice, becoming heavier and heavier until the boat toppled upside down. With the gale howling around their ears, they took down the sails and rolled them up, stuffing them into the cramped space below. Then they rigged a sea anchor, a canvas cone dragged through the water to keep the boat turned into the storm. Throughout the night, waves crashed over the James Caird and quickly turned to ice. At first, the crew was relieved, since it meant the flimsy decking was sealed against further leaks. But when they awoke on the eighth day, they felt the clumsy, heavy motion of the boat beneath them and knew they were in trouble. Fifteen inches of ice encased the boat above the waterline, and she was rolling badly. We saw and felt that the James Caird had lost her resiliency, Shacklin said later. 
She was not rising to the oncoming seas, and the weight of the ice was having its effect, and she was becoming more like a log than a boat. Well, the ice had to come off. Taking turns, the men crawled on hands and knees over the ice deck, hacking away with an axe. First you chopped a handhold, and then a knee-hold, and then chopped off ice hastily but carefully, with an occasional sea washing over you, was explained. Each man could stand only five minutes or so of this cold and perilous job at a time, and then it was the next man's turn. And the gale continued through the next day, too, as Shacklin crawled out to relieve Worsley at the tiller. A large wave slammed the skipper right in the face. Shackleton took the tiller ropes and commented, Pretty juicy, and both men managed a weak laugh. As the storm continued, a large buildup of ice on the sea anchor's rope had kept the line swinging and sawing against the stern. Before noon on the ninth day, the sea anchor broke away and the boat lurched heavily as seas hit her at the broadside. Before the gale ended that afternoon, the men had had to crawl onto the deck three times to get rid of the boat's shell of ice. The men all agreed that it was the worst job any of them had ever been forced to do. By the time the gale ended, everything below was thoroughly soaked. The sleeping bags were so slimy and revolting that Shacklin had the two worst of them thrown overboard. Even before the storm, however, the men had been suffering from the constant wet. After the third day, our feet and legs had swelled, Worsley wrote later, and began to be superficially frostbitten from the constant soaking in seawater, with the temperature at times nearly down to zero, and the lack of exercise. But during the last gale, they assumed a dead white color and lost surface feeling. Exposure was beginning to wear the men down. In spite of two hot meals a day, they were hungry for fresh meat. Cape pigeons often darted and flitted around the boat, but the men couldn't bring themselves to kill the friendly birds. And ancient superstition forbade them from killing the albatross that still followed majestically. But the men were in pain. They were cold, frostbitten, covered with saltwater blisters. Their legs were rubbed raw from the chafing of their wet pants. Conditions below were almost unbearable. The stinking, rotting sleeping bags made the air putrid, and the molting hairs choked the men as they tried to gasp for breath. Their bodies were bruised and aching from their pounding up and down in the bows, and they were exhausted from lack of sleep. McNeish, who was more than 50, was beginning to break down. Vincent, who should have stood the conditions well, was also close to collapsing. Shackleton, Worsley, Crean, and McCarthy took up the slack. When someone looked particularly bad, the boss ordered a round of hot milk for all hands. The one man he really wanted to get the hot drink into never realized that the break was for his benefit, and so wasn't embarrassed, and all the men were better off having the warmth and nourishment. The night after the gale ended, Shacklin was at the tiller, crouched in a half-standing, half-sitting position against the thwart with his back hunched against the cold. He, he glanced back toward the south and saw a line of white along the horizon. It's clearing, boys, he shouted. But when he looked back again, he yelled, For God's sake, hold on! It's got us! Instead of a clearing sky, the white line of the south was a foaming crest of an enormous storm wave bearing down on them. Worsley was just crawling out of his sleeping bag when the wave struck. And for a few moments, the entire boat seemed to be submerged. Worsley, Crean, Vincent, McCarthy, and McNeish frantically pumped and bailed with everything they could find. The cook pot, dippers, their hands, anything that would get the water out of the boat. For an hour, they labored to keep the water from capsizing the carrot. They could hardly believe they had not foundered, and they prayed they would not see another wave like that one again. On the tenth day, the sun showed its face along long enough for Worsley to get a fix. He calculated that they had made 444 miles from Elephant Island, more than half the distance. 
The men rejoiced as the weather cleared, and they had the first good weather of the passage. They brought wet sleeping bags and clothes up on the deck and hung them from the masts, halyards, and rigging. The sleeping bags and clothing didn't dry, but they were reduced, were reduced from soaking wet to merely damp. All their spirits were lifted. They were more than halfway to South Georgia Island. We were a tiny speck in the vast vista of the sea, Shackleton wrote later. And for a moment, the consciousness of the forces arrayed against us would be overwhelming. Then hope and confidence would rise again as our boat rose to a wave and tossed aside the crest in a sparkling shower like the play of prismatic colors at the foot of a waterfall. They had less than half the distance left to go.